I love it. Um, I'm your favorite Australian, hey? Thanks, man. It's because I'm your only one. <laughs> no more. One's enough. Hey, but Australia beat New Zealand in the T20 World Cup cricket today. Sorry, New Zealand. And everyone said, no. <laughs> cricket? What's that? <laughs> very important to our part of the world. Um, anyway, hi, I'm Maddie. Welcome if you're visiting today. If you don't know who I am, my name's Maddie. I, um, my wife and I are happily serving uh, the discipleship school here at the church. So every Saturday we have a group of people come and Wednesday nights, I think we have 26 students going on a discipleship journey, man. It's awesome. And we'll be doing that for the next several months and we're just having a good time, learning, digging deep, wrestling, struggling, you know, all that stuff. It's really fun. And so today I was invited to come and as part of our book series, for those who are uh, regular here, you'll know we've been reading a book uh, by James Smith. It's called The Good and Beautiful God, and we've been taking a bit of a walk through that. And so I was invited to come with uh, a chapter that's called God is Holy. I was like, thanks, man. Like, God is holy? Like, really difficult. That's a big topic. Wouldn't you agree? And so my, my, my challenge was, you know, God is holy as a subject is like, how do I wrestle with this? Because on one level, it could appear that I could just do a real brief, this is what God's holiness is, and then we go away saying, oh, that's what the holiness of God is. Or you could spend six months talking about the holiness of God and still not come away fully understanding the, the, the depth of who God is and what His holiness looks like. But that's the beauty of this book, actually. On one level, it can seem like it's quite a simple read, but to actually engage with it and wrestle with it and then to address the false narratives and to take personal time to reflect on those can actually be quite a profound experience. So strongly encourage you to keep reading, keep pressing in, keep coming with questions, keep letting the Lord unfold these false narratives and how they work in your life. But like I mentioned, today I'm talking on God is Holy. If you've been following the book, last week you'll know uh, we switched chapters. Last week would have been chapter six and this week would have been chapter seven. We flipped them. Uh, love is sacrifice, God is self-sacrificing, just tied right into the sort of honoring of the Remembrance Day service last week, so we flipped chapters. But last week, Pastor Greg did such a beautiful job inviting us to consider what it means to step into that new story with God. It's a fantastic job, but Jesus paid that ultimate price. He emptied himself as the suffering servant to lay his life down. It was such a beautiful message, Pastor Greg, and if you didn't hear it, please go and listen. Um, what, why is that an important message to understand, what Pastor Greg shared last week? Because I, I'm going to be honest with you, it, for us to get to where we want to get to today, I, I want to take a little bit of a treatment on this issue of sin, if that's okay. Can I just name the sort of the pink elephant of sin? And name that sin is real. Can we just start with that kind of assumption today? that sin is a reality, and we're not going to camp there and live in how horrible sin is, but I think it's important to have an honest understanding that sin is real. Can we just start with that assumption today? Sin exists. It's a reality. I actually don't know how any of us can have a true, accurate picture of the world, or even an accurate picture of myself, without understanding that sin is a reality. It's real. It exists. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is fascinating. See if you can identify yourself in this story. Romans 7, 18 to 24, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's good, and I can't carry it out. Any of you resonate with that? Or is it just me that says, oh man, yeah, 
There's this part of me that knows what is good to do, and yet somehow I continue to not do those things. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. This is what he goes on to say, I do not do the good I want to do, instead I keep doing evil, the things I don't want to do. And if I do what I do want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's this sin that lives in me. So here's the principle I discovered, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me. My inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work at my body, warring against the law of my mind, holding me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. What a wretched man I am, who can save me from this body of death? Have you ever had those moments before? I love that Paul is willing to confront sin. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't hide from it from the overarching story of the gospel, that it's part of the narrative. There is this issue called sin, and it's so real. And I love his honesty, I love his wrestle, because I identify with that, don't you? Is there a part of you that sees there's this, uh, the best part of you wants to serve God, but there's this other part that's just sin, just is so corrupting. I want to do these things, but I can't, and then I don't want to do that, but I'm just pulled that way. There's just something about this thing called sin, we just want to know. Sin does create habits of desire that keep us in bondage. Would you agree with that statement? Sin produces habits of desire that can keep us in bondage. Because we, we know the things we ought to do and don't, and we know the things we ought not to do and do. This is the reality of sin. And here's the, here's the striking thing about this. How many of you know that God is 100% opposed to sin? He really is. Not 99.95, not 99.98. It's just 100% hate sin. Do you know why? Because He knows that it damages His people. He doesn't hate you. He hates sin because he knows what sin does is keep us in bondage to these habits of desire that are not freeing, that don't set us free to be who God's called us to be. It's why he hates sin with such a passion, because he knows what it does to us. He knows how it corrupts us. If you've ever doubted sin, you've only got to look at history. You've only got to look at even the reality of our world today. We'll name it a little bit here in a minute. We're going to be honest. We're going to name that pink elephant. How many of you know that our Bible names that sin is real? It's an inclination of the heart to be in control, to be God, to, to love the things that are not God. It does things to us that means all we want to do if we're not careful is minimize pain and maximize pleasure. It's very Freudian if you've ever studied Freud. He says, hey, your whole life is just about pleasure. Your whole will exists so that you can please yourself. And there's a part of us that gets that, isn't there? That the choices I make are really about minimizing pain, maximizing pleasure. Life is about my comfort, my needs. How many of you know that sin ultimately is this sort of selfish part that just seeks its own good? And I know that to be true for me because it, it resonates with me very strongly because there is a part of me that I identify myself in that. How many of you know from the very beginning, sin leads to violence, to death? Adam blamed God and Eve for sin. Eve blames the servant. Cain kills Abel, so on and so forth. And even today, we see the reality of sin at work, don't we? Bit of a trigger warning here. I just want to share a few statistics. I won't drill down deep into them, just to let you know. Because we want to name it. We want to confront it. We want to have the honesty to see it. In 1994, over 800,000 women, children, and men were hacked to death in Rwanda because they were seen as less than human. You know the Rwandan genocide. Because they were seen as less than, they were treated less than, 800,000 people with lives were taken. Between 98 and 2003, do you know that over 5 million people died 
simply because of a conflict in the Congo of Africa. Five million lives lost due to war. 300,000 deaths and climbing are recorded in an ongoing conflict that exists today in the Sudan region of Africa. Almost 600,000 people have died in Syria as their conflict continues to this day. Each day, including right now today, 25,000 people are going to die because they're hungry, and that includes 10,000 children because they don't have food to eat. Roger's Place can hold 18,500 at a hockey game. Imagine that every day, that amount of people dying simply because they just don't have food to eat. They're hungry. They're sick. The cost of providing basic health care, basic health care and nutrition for the whole world's population would be less than the amount that Americans and Europeans spend on pet food. In America alone, the United States, $99 billion a year is spent on pet-related products. The pornography industry makes $12 billion a year in America alone. $100 billion a year globally. The world's eight richest billionaires control the same wealth between the eight of them as half the world's population. 12% of the world's population uses 85% of its water resource. I mean, these are statistics, and it's even hard for my mind to get, but I want to name that sin is real. Sin affects our community, sin affects our own person, and sin affects even the environment. 40% of marriages in Canada will end in divorce. 700 people in Canada will die by the hand of another human being. How many of you know sin exists? It's a global reality. Would you agree with me? How many of you know it's not just out there? It's local. How many of you know sin exists in our own community, in Morinville, in Sturgeon County? How many of you know there are broken walls in the foundations in this community? There are devastated ruins. Work with victim services. You know, the top three referrals are domestic violence, sexual assault, and non-sexual assault. Top three referrals that come through that system are for those three issues in our own region. Work at Jesse's house, and I know some people that work there too. We get to see the devastation of what domestic violence does in relationships and to people and to communities and to families. And it's in our own backyard, guys, just down the road from here. We see it every day, the brokenness, what sin does. How many of you would agree that sin is a local reality? It's a global issue. It's a local issue. But how many of you know it's not just out there? How many of you know, how about myself? I struggle with sin, you guys. I know to love my wife and my kids, but I don't sometimes. I know what I should do, but I don't do it, as Paul wrestles with. I struggle sometimes to be fully present to the mission of God in my life. I can be lazy sometimes, physically lazy, emotionally lazy, spiritually lazy. How many of you know that sin has produced death and violence even in our own hearts? It's why Jesus says, if you so much as hate your brother in your heart, you're liable for murder. Why? Because Jesus personalizes this issue of sin. It's not just a thing that's out there. He names it. He says, there is a part of us that knows to do good but won't. And that issue produces those behaviors. Jesus names it. He's very honest with it. He personalizes sin. 
And how many of you know, unfortunately, without the God story, without the gospel, without any more than that, that's pretty devastating. If we are about minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure, how many of you know we can build stories around sin and just make it acceptable? Because I don't want to confront sin because it's so painful. So I would rather submit myself to the authority of the world that says that's okay to do. That's the challenge of these competing stories. That's why the gospel is so beautiful, you guys. It's why what we're going to explore today and understand that the holiness of God is a good thing. It's beautiful and it's going to help us. Because the challenge is a holy God cannot coexist with sin. That's the challenge. His wrath, His judgment is about judging that which is not good and making it right. It's why we can understand, hopefully at the end of this, that the wrath of God is a good thing. Because it's about judging the junk, judging what's not good, and bringing restoration, and healing, and wholeness. It's good. Because God is so profoundly a God of love, a God of justice. God pursues His creation from the very foundation of beginning of this earth. He has pursued His people unrelentingly to make a way for His presence, His life, to be at the center of the community. Later on, God takes a group, the Israelites, the least likely, the most unassuming. Deuteronomy says, I didn't choose you because you were the brightest bunch, just so you know. In fact, you were probably the least on the face of the earth. But that's perfect, because what I'm going to do through you is I'm going to make a way where we confront sin and my presence will be with you, and you're going to be a light to the world. He takes this random group of people, and he establishes this temple system where sin was dealt with, God would be amongst his creation, they would be a light. There was a bunch of ceremony and processes we're not going to talk about that made them confront sin, and they would be a people that would walk with the life of God, His presence. Sin was dealt with. It was seen, smelt, heard as they placed sin on that animal. And God's design was seen in the temple, a way where His wrath was satisfied where the community could be made whole, always pointing to Jesus, because Jesus shows up in Matthew, and you know what He begins to say? Some crazy things like this. Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Remember, the temple in their identity was the place of God's presence. The place where sin was confronted, where sin was dealt with, where God's presence would be made known. And Jesus starts saying, I am the temple. No wonder they killed him. They didn't like that. John 2, he says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus comes proclaiming that all the ceremony, all the stuff would be dealt with in him, and he would bring the presence of God. And he goes to that cross. And we learn that he who knew no sin, what? Became sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus declares with a, a war-like, victorious cry, it is finished. All the work, all the ceremony, the reality of sin has been dealt with. I'd be crying too if I heard myself yelling. It's okay, buddy. I'm pretty loud today. I just got to wind it back a bit. The poor children. Sorry, sweetie. Crazy Australian yelling. On the cross, it's not an angry father punishing a son. It's God's wrath being poured out on sin. 
And Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is dealt with on the cross. The guilt offering's been made. We are declared righteous because of Christ. It's why Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I receive, I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul, being a good Jew, recognized this reality. His Scriptures weren't what we had. They were the Old Testament. And he sees that everything that has taken place in the God story is fulfilled in Christ. And he declares what Christ did fulfilled the temple, fulfilled the work of the Old Testament, fulfills all the requirements so that sin can be confronted and dealt with. Everything was pointing to Jesus all along. And he has fulfilled all the requirements to deal with that death and separation that sin causes between us. And we are now reconciled to God. Where sin has called, caused death and separation, where sin has called the, caused the devastation, Jesus has reconciled us back to God when we were once exiled, foreigners, aliens, outside of the community, through the cross, sin, the issue has been confronted and dealt with. You and I are reconciled to God. This is good news that Paul's declaring. He gets it. He understands the temple. He knows what's going on. Christ died according to the Scriptures. God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against them. As the psalmist declares in 102, as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed your transgressions from you. So far, if you drew a line east and west, I don't know which direction that is, but if you drew a line that direction, it would never end, wouldn't it? North and south, you'd hit each other. East and west, he's saying, it's gone. So far, he has removed sin from us. Pastor Greg last week said this, that Jesus is the door. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come and enter in through the door of Jesus. Because what Jesus has done is dealt with the issue of sin. He's defeated sin and death. He's conquered its power and he's raised to life. And how many of you know Jesus was raised to life as the Lord, the King of a kingdom? Jesus was raised to life to be the King of a kingdom. How many of you know that the God story doesn't end with forgiveness? It keeps going. Forgiveness becomes the starting point of reconciling what, when we were lost and broken, back to God. How many of you know it's not just, oh, great, and then that's it. Forgiveness is the starting point. God knows we can't do it alone. God knows that we're slaves to sin. It would cheapen the grace of God to suggest that we're reconciled. Now we just go and live our life as we please. How many of you know that forgiveness is the starting point, we are reconciled, sin is dealt with, but God doesn't leave us there. We're not going to unpack this, and you know I've done this many times when I preached one of my favorite stories, John 20. Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection, and he comes into this room, and he shows them the scars, he shows them the victory, he says, look, peace be with you, I've defeated the grave, I've fulfilled it, sin is dealt with, the veil's been torn in two, the presence of God is here. And they get all excited, do you remember? And they're up and down, they're like overjoyed. And he says, relax, because as I was sent, I'm sending you. Jesus was sent to the cross-shaped life. Now he's going to his followers and saying, as I was sent, now I send you. I send you out 
But not only that, he looks at them, breathes on them, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who's defeated death, raised to life, now breathes his spirit that has defeated death, defeated the grave, defeated sin. He breathes that breath on his believers, on his followers. And they're awoken to their new human reality to be the people of God. The word is eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. Eternal life isn't a ticket to heaven. Eternal life is the resurrected life of Christ that lives in each and every one of us when we come into this relationship reconciled to God. Eternal life isn't something we get when we die. It is now. It's the abiding life of Christ that has been breathed into us, his spirit that has defeated sin and death, comes into our life, and we receive eternal life. How many of you know God is so good that He not only deals with the issue of sin and reconciles us, He says, you're not going to be alone. He gives His Spirit. He gives the power that has defeated sin, and He breathes it into us to make us alive back to our vocation with God. Where sin has caused death and separation, He comes and gives us life. He gives us His Spirit a set-apart spirit, his eternal life, his presence, Christ Emmanuel, God is now with us. God's presence is now with us as God's people. The NT New Testament writers understood the temple, most of all Paul. He says this crazy thing. He understood that Jesus accomplished the work. And in 1 Corinthians, he says this, don't you know, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Where the temple was the place of God's presence, where sin was confronted, and the community had the presence of God, Jesus comes and says, I am that temple. In Him, everything was dealt with, and now He's so good, He reconciles us, and now gives us the Spirit of God. The very presence of God is now given to us because sin is dealt with. You and I are the temple of God. We bring the presence of God through His Spirit. It's what Paul believes. He's a Jew. He understood the temple. You are the temple of His dwelling. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus says, as I was sent, I'm sending you. You're different. You now have the breath of God. I think this life that we're invited into is an abundant, beautiful life with God. It is more than just, thank you, Jesus, for doing this thing for me. Now I'm going to go and live my life and go to heaven. That's actually the starting point is forgiveness. But there's an invitation into life with God. Whole life with God in which we become the people of God He's called us to be. Peter, in his letter to the dispersed church. First Peter, great book of the Bible. I encourage you to read it. It's about the church community who are living in a hostile world, and hostile not as in like a warring world, hostile as in neighbors who used to like them don't anymore because they've got this God thing going on. And so Peter's writing these encouragements to him, just saying, look, you guys, here's some things. And he says this, therefore, with minds that are alert, 1 Peter 13, and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
For it is written, be holy as I am holy. If you've been reading the book, you'll know in this chapter, the false narrative, the story that can be a tendency for us to live from if we're not aware, is we're saved by grace, and that means we can go and live our life and do what we want. The Bible is clear that we're actually invited into a new way of living that reflects this new life. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. When I think of calling, I think about what is my calling? Like, what am I meant to be doing? But the New Testament understanding of calling literally means the invitation to salvation. That's what calling is. Calling is the going out of the proclamation of God's goodness and you receiving that salvation. And what he's saying is, live a life worthy of the salvation you've received. Of the new life that God has breathed into you that sets you apart from everyone else. Just like the Israelites, you know, the less than kind of smart. Me, you probably. You and me. He says, live a life worthy of your calling. I urge you. Forgiveness is the starting point in which I release control of my life because of sin. How many of you know that when you and I enter into that relationship with God, really the question is not just a free ticket to heaven, it's actually a transaction into which we realize that sin has caused death and separation, and Jesus has reconciled us to God, and we say, God, Jesus, you're the Lord of a kingdom. You have authority, and I submit my life to you. Because you are a good and merciful and holy judge. Forgiveness is the starting point to release control. And it's us giving control to God. How many of you know that Jesus taught with authority? How many of you know that Jesus has authority as the king? In Matthew 5 to 7, it concludes after this chapter 5 to chapter 7, Jesus does this amazing teaching. And at the very end, everyone was astonished. And they said, When Jesus finished, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. How many of you know at the transfiguration, the Father affirmed the authority of Jesus? He goes up to the mountain with his two disciples. They're transformed. A father from heaven says, This is my son in whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Do you remember hearing that before? At Jesus' baptism, he's affirmed by the Father. But this time, the Father goes on to say, listen to him. There's an authority that has been placed on Jesus from the Father that says he has authority. Actually, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. They'd been walking with Jesus, and they recognized the authority, the power of Jesus as Lord of a kingdom, and they fell down on their knees in worship. They saw his authority. And before Jesus ascended to heaven in Matthew 28, it says... Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you until the end of ages. How many of you know that when we make Jesus the Lord of our life, we're actually entering into a relationship with submission to Christ and His authority? It's more than a prayer and off we go and live our own life. It's a handing over of control to the king. It's putting it all on the table and just saying, Jesus, the issue of sin is that I want to be in control. And I realize that that's caused a lot of challenge in my life. 
So Jesus, I'm going to trust that you have authority over a kingdom and that you are in control. Here is it all. It's not a laissez-faire faith. It is a complete abandonment to the new story that God wants to write in your life. You get his forgiveness, and God is so good that he also gives you his spirit to enable you to experience the fullness of eternal life. Jesus even says, however, in this, that we're free to choose the life we want to live. It's one of the challenges, because God isn't this dominating, awful, evil, angry God that just wants to grab you and do what he pleases. He makes a way... He gives you his spirit and says, here's a place that you can have a taste of what heaven will be like, that you can have the abiding life of Christ that has defeated sin, that you no longer need to be captive to. But he also says, but you can submit your life to any authority. Did you know that? How many of you know that there are a lot of narratives in the world that are trying to tell a story about what life is about and the good life? The gospel is the good news story that helps us name the issue of sin, what Jesus has done, our life now that we get to experience, and our future hope. But the world is coming with all kinds of stories, and Jesus names it. He says in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life. What's he talking about? In ancient antiquity, the word gate represents authority. So when Jesus says, you can enter the wide gate, there are all kinds of stories you can live your life by. There are all kinds of narratives of the world where you do you and you please yourself, and that's fine, you can. But you need to know when you submit to the authority of the stories of this world, it will lead to destruction. The Greek word for destruction literally means you will lose eternal life. Which is now... What he's saying is, you can build your life around the authorities of this world if you please, but I need you to know, dear children, that it will mean you don't get to experience the fullness of the life I've called you to. For God has given us eternal life and said, here's the victorious life in which you can experience the fullness of God, but you still get to choose to submit your life to the authority of this world. But narrow is the gate. You know why? Because Jesus is the way. He's the only way. It's only one way. That's why it's so narrow. There's no other authorities other than Jesus. That's why he says it's so narrow. You walk through that narrow pathway, but it will lead to life. Because he's done it for us. How many of you know it's good news? It means we don't need to strive and labor anymore. It means that God is so merciful, so good in His holiness that He said, okay, the thing that robs you of life, I'm going to deal with. I'm going to destroy it. And I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to empower you with another way to live that makes you alive. But I'm so good that I still give you the choice to live the way you want to live. But you just need to know you get to choose life. That's the holiness of God. It's good news for us. His wrath judges that which isn't good and makes it right for us. That's how good God is. You receive His forgiveness, and now you have this set-apart spirit that leads you to life. God isn't a manipulator or a forceful beast that wants you to do what He pleases. No, He gives you a place to live from where you get to experience life. Because we learned earlier that sin equals death and separation. Sin always seems final when you're doing it. 
That's what Jesus is saying. It's wise. You can live in that big field and submit to all kinds of authorities and it looks good and you can tell yourself stories about why that's good. But in the end, you will lose life. It will rob you from the eternal life that I've given you, which is the presence of God. You are a temple. What do you get to have God dwell with you? He's not this distant, far-off being. He's, he's here. He's with you. Galatians 6 names, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you please the flesh, the flesh you will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life, he says. Wide is the gate, the authorities, but it leads to destruction. But God says, listen, if you, if you understand that I've given you life, I've judged sin, I've dealt with it, I've made a way, and not only that, I've given it to you, you can experience life. How good is the holiness of God? That he has dealt with the stuff, the junk, the garbage that stops us from living life. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus says, if you hear the words of mine and you act on them, you're going to be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. It didn't fall. You know why? Because it was founded on the rock. The authority of Jesus who lays his life down to become the rock into which we can build our life upon and experience life. When life gets a little crazy and the winds hit, it's like you're not going to get knocked around. Paul says in Ephesians, when you mature, you will no longer be an infant tossed to and fro by the waves. You will be like the one who has built his life or her life on a rock and you will not be shaken. However, if you hear the words and you don't do them, you're going to be like a foolish man who decides to build a house on sand. The rain come, the flood come, the winds blew, slammed against that house, and its collapse was great. Romans 6.15 names, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you used to be a slave to sin and you've come to obey from your heart a pattern of teaching his authority that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and you've become a slave to righteousness. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Holiness of God is that God deals with sin. He don't like it 100% of the time. But he's so good that he doesn't leave you in judgment. He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of eternal life. And he gives us the ability to choose to follow after his way and his teaching and to build our life on that truth so that you and I can experience life. And I tell you, when you're full of life, you look beautiful. You look so good. And I'm going to tell you to a world who's full of death and destruction, you're going to tell a different story. And the story is the good news of Jesus Christ, who's defeated the grave, was raised to life, given us his spirit, and says, you are now a temple of my presence to the world. You're a light on a hill. I love what Paul says at the end when we started. He says, who will save me from this body of death? He goes on and says, thanks be to God. 
who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. My sinful nature wants to be a slave to the law of sin. But I now have another place to live from. Despite the reality that my flesh desires to sin, I am no longer in bondage to that. I now have the gift of eternal life, which means though I may struggle with sin at times, I am no longer captive to it. Jesus has overcome it, and I now get to visit the cross and say, God, you saw me struggle there, and he's like, here's life. In the same way, he looked at Peter and said, yeah, you don't love me, that's okay, let's keep going. Go feed my sheep, because you are greater than the sum of your sin because of Jesus, because you are clothed in righteousness. Praise God. (laughs) I think we realize that the holiness of God is a good thing because it deals with sin and sets us free to walk with Jesus. I think you want God's holiness. You want him to deal with it. You want him to make right what's wrong. You want him to restore. You want to watch HGTV and watch that house get ripped apart and built. You want that for your life because God will come and restore and make new. It's what he does for you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we're getting to the end. We're going to watch a video here. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul, spirit be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you knew, you guys know, we, when living our best life, and I'm not talking the you as you best life, I'm talking the life of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in which we live from the power of His Spirit, and we tell a different story, we become a foretaste of what the heaven is going to look like. We're a foretaste of a future reality, you and I. We're a foretaste of the kingdom of God for the world. And I've got to tell you something. We have a beautiful story together. And how many of you know Jesus Christ is going to come back in full power and full authority one day, and I want to be ready for that day, don't you? Because the, the, the hardest part about the cheap side of grace, well, the reality of the cheap side of grace is there's kind of a part where it's like God does all that work, and we can get the ticket to heaven and just barely make it through kind of thing, but we don't get to experience the fullness of life now. That's the gift of eternal life. And there's a time where Jesus will return. And like a bride waiting for her groom, we will be a church ready for you. We'll be awaiting this great and final day where God comes. And we're going to be a people who embody the presence of God, waiting for our Savior, our King to come and make new, that the new heavens and the new earth will come. Sin causes damage to the community, but we have the joy of living in the expectation of Christ's return. I just want to throw up a video. Someone from our discipleship school brought this to us a couple weeks ago, and I thought, this is just such a beautiful way. It's eight minutes. It's a song. It's by the West Coast Choir. It's called, Is He Worthy? I'm going to invite you now to just turn your phone off, be distracted. Don't be distracted, sorry. And uh, stop checking the football scores. And, and uh, can you just sit back and just... Just, just encounter the words of this song and just meditate, and then we'll just pray and be done. Cool?
What do you reckon? You reckon he's worthy? Hey, thanks be to God. He's given us life. And I think he's worthy. He's worthy of our praise because he has saved us. For that I'm thankful. Can we just pray? Just finish our time together just to pray and take a minute. Just give you a minute, just a moment of silence, just because I think the words are there and the noise, just settle your heart a little bit. Let's just take a minute. Pastor Tyler plays guitar there. Just I'll keep keep your eyes closed for me, but I'd love to hear your response. Just what, if anything, one word would you want to say out loud, either to God or as a, as an expression? I reckon God loves you. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm left with. I reckon He does. I think He makes that pretty clear. You know, part, the part of being a new creation church is that the past doesn't need to dictate your future anymore. How many of you know that? The old script is no longer where you need to live from. But there's a new story God's writing, and the beautiful thing is He invites us to live life. You know, right here and now storms come as we read jesus says the storms will come the waves bash against the house sometimes you know life's tough i get it for you some of you varying degrees of difficulty i don't want to minimize that but what, what i'm hopeful for is that god has made a way to deal with the garbage and the sin to give us life that despite that there's another place we get to come from where you know as the psalmist says you're my rock you're my fortress this eternal life, the holiness of God means that that stuff has been dealt with, but now it no longer needs to dictate that in your life anymore. You're free. The story of the world is so alluring, isn't it? But the beautiful thing about our gospel story is that we can, we live in the empty grave, the resurrected life, but we still get to go back to the cross and say, hey God, yeah, I'm struggling here. This is tough. And, and the Bible says if you confess your sins, He is just he is merciful to forgive you and there's no and or it's just we get to come back and say god this stuff's getting in the way and his forgiveness means he makes things right it's good we get to release control so i just encourage you as you go this week to meditate on that 
Where do you want the holiness of God? Where do you need the holiness of God? Where are you living from the past? Where are you living from the script that has kept you enslaved? And God's saying, hey, there's a new way. Like, there's a new way to go and it leads to eternal life and freedom. So if there's anyone here today and you say, I want a taste of that freedom, you know, it just begins by recognizing the reconciliation of the cross. It's the starting point of life. God gives you the gift of His Spirit. And so I just want to pray for you this morning. I don't want to leave you without that opportunity. So if that's you today, with everyone's eyes closed, can you just raise your hand? Because I want to pray for you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Great, great honor and commitment because what you're acknowledging is you're sick of the taste of sin and you're sick of it ruling your life. You are going to still sin, but you're no longer bound by its nature. You are no longer a slave to sin. And you raising your hand or acknowledging that what Jesus did on the cross has accomplished that work, has defeated its power, you can now be set free. And, and it seems so like, well, what do I need to do? Do I need to sign something? No, you're just acknowledging that Jesus is enough and you need a new story. And he says, it's all good. And he, he's going to reconcile you to God and he's going to breathe his spirit into you and you're now going to have a new place to come from. And so for you who raise your hand today, God bless you. I'm going to pray for you right now. Lord Jesus. And I'm going to ask for those who have prayed the, a prayer, just pray it with me, would you, out loud? Lord Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross. That you dealt with sin. And you reconciled us to God. That we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free. Thank you that you pour out your love into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for newness of life. I receive your eternal life now, God. The life that has defeated sin and death on the, on the cross. And you call me to a new way to live. And lastly, thank you that the past no longer defines my future. There's prayer at the cross today, guys. There's people who would love to pray with you and just fellowship. If you need that, you want that, don't run away back into the busyness of life. Take some time. Go and pray. Spend some time in fellowship. And God bless you. See you next week. Thanks for being a part of the people of God today. And, uh, and, and it may our worship and may all that we do be pleasing to God today. Amen. Amen.